city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. 15th century physician and alchemist Paracelsus once said, all things are poisons for there is nothing without poisonous qualities. It is only the dose which makes a thing poison. Today, we're going to talk about doses that are given intentionally for the purpose of killing and the people who give them. We're going to talk about criminal poisoning. Welcome to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's episode. I am especially excited to welcome our guest today, who is John Trestrail. John is recognized worldwide as the leading authority on the subjects of criminal poisoning and murder by poison. He is a practicing forensic and clinical toxicologist and runs the Center for the Study of Criminal Poisoning. For many years, he was a visiting instructor at the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia, on these very topics. Welcome to the show, John. Morning. Thank you. So how common is poison used to murder these days in the 21st century? I think it's more common than than we thought, and I think that many of the cases are missed initially. One of the statistics I come up with when I study my thousand cases of known poisonings is that 41% of poisoners are serial killers. That means wow. that they got away with it the first time, second time, third time. People began to talk, exhumation happens, and they say, oops, we missed it. So I think there are a lot of people out there in our cemeteries. I, I often say if all those people who have been murdered by poison are in the cemeteries could raise their hands, we'd be shocked by the numbers. I mean, 41%, that is a really high number. How does it compare to other murderers? <clears throat> I'm not sure. I haven't studied the other murderers. All I know is that 41% means that they had more than one victim. They got away with it. They got away with it. They got away with it, which means that my thoughts are I have to do something to keep people suspicions all the time. I have to teach homicide detectives suspected. I mean, the bottom line to this thing is all deaths with no visible signs of violence is a poisoning until facts prove otherwise. Well, I can tell you, having done a little bit of research on homicide recidivism, that that number is significantly higher than what I have found in looking at just homicide offenders across the board. So it definitely sounds like we need a lot of attention paid to this because of the high recidivism rate. Right. Surprises me. It still shocks me when I came up with that uh, statistic off my database. I thought, holy smoke, 41%. That's amazing. So how did you get interested in this topic? You know, I was trained as a pharmacist and went on to run a poison control center. So I lived in the world of poisons for 40, 50 years. But I, the only thing I can think of is that I was supposed to do this. And so when I got into the area of forensics, I found that it was an area that was not really discussed well. I mean, if you read books on toxicology, this typically talks about so this is arsenic, and this is what it looks like, and this is a lethal dose, and this is how you detect it. But nobody in any of these books talks about the poisoner. Who did it? Why did they use it? How did they get away with it? So that's, 
That's the area that I work in now is trying to figure out what makes them tick. And so was there a particular case that really kind of roped you in and led you to kind of develop this as your specialty area? Well, the initial case I can remember started reading it when I was quite young was the famous case of Holly Harvey Crippen in the United Kingdom in 1910. And this is the second most famous British murder after Jack the Ripper. I mean, 41 books have been written on this case. So I kept studying it and studying it and trying to figure out why he used the poison. Did he use the poison? Why did he dissect the victim? I mean, that doesn't make sense. And it led me into some interesting work to kind of answer some questions about that case. For those people who are not familiar with this case, give us the kind of basic scenario of what happened. Okay. Uh, Holly Harvey Crippen was a homeopathic physician. He was an American citizen, born in Coldwater, Michigan in 1862. He was hanged in 1910 for the murder of his wife, Cora Crippen. Uh, He supposedly used a a poison called hyacinth hydrobromide, which we use today on those little patches you put behind your ear so you don't get seasick. That's scopolamine or hyacinth. And uh, the thing about the case that's interesting is that he dismembered the victim. Now, as a poisoner, you want to walk away from the crime, have the evidence buried in the cemetery, and walk away. When you dismember the victim, and this is the only case I know where the poisoner has dismembered the victim, I says, there's something here that doesn't make sense. So when I started delving into it, I thought, maybe he didn't do it. Maybe that's not her. I mean, there was no bones, no organs of gender found under the coal cellar in the house, just some decaying flesh, some woman's hair, and some clothing. And that was it. And they were able to convict him. I mean, the jury was out 27 minutes, and they hanged him about two weeks later. So uh, as I started to look at that, I started to learn about mitochondrial DNA and its use in... um, proving identification by following the female line down through the genealogy. And uh, I had the opportunity to visit what they call the Black Museum at Scotland Yard when I was in London. And I saw the hair from this grave that was used in the trial. And I thought, hmm, hair. I wonder if we can find some living relatives coming down the female line from the missing wife, his wife, Cora Crippen. It took us seven years of research to find three half-grandnieces of hers. We did the mitochondrial DNA comparison so that we had her DNA, the missing woman's now, her mitochondrial DNA. We then tried to get some hair from Scotland Yard. They refused to do it. We then went after the actual tissue slides from the trial, which is at the Royal London Hospital. Uh, They graciously loaned us one. It went to the um, DNA guys at Michigan State University. They were able to extract from the tissue the mitochondrial DNA. And then we did a comparison with the living exemplars, and it turned out it wasn't her. So you solved basically a case that had been solved years ago. Yep, and I was amazed at the results. And not only that, but they did nuclear DNA on the tissue and it turned out the remains were male. So is there any, any sense of who this person was? 
No, but it's not her. I'll tell you that. And that's why he was hanged. Some people say, well, he obviously killed someone. And I say, hey, that's another trial. Yeah. He was hanged. He was hanged for the murder of his wife. There's no evidence that she's murdered. There's no evidence where she was. He said she ran off. Maybe she did. Well, I know this is a difficult case because there was some incriminating evidence in terms of the relationship he was having outside of his marriage. And oh, I, wonder, yes. I wonder if all those circumstances kind of collided to expedite his conviction. Yeah, this was kind of the O.J. Simpson trial of the early 1900s. If you remember O.J. Simpson and fleeing in the car down the expressway and everybody watching, he fled across the Atlantic on a ship with his mistress, Ethel Leneve, who was his secretary, trying to get to Canada. And they chased him across the Atlantic and caught him and took them back for trial. So, yeah, it was an interesting case. I mean, he was tried in the media. It was known all over the world, this case. That's what got me into this. And how do you think poisoning has changed over the centuries, looking at the Crippen case and then looking at how things are today? I'm not so sure it has changed. And normally when I talk to, uh, I remember talking to someone at Scotland Yard, and I said, uh, I'm here to look at the poisoner artifacts in the museum. And he said, it's not as common as it was long ago. And I said, well, how do you know that? And he says, because we're better at detecting it today. And I thought, yeah, because of that, you're worse at suspecting it in the first place. I mean, New York City, Chicago have very sophisticated analytical toxicology laboratories. But there are small villages in our country where the coroner drives a tow truck for the village. I mean, I don't know how sophisticated that is. So is it easy to get away with it? Sure it is, but not looking. One of the things I've come across in doing some research on poisoners is that it does seem like the poisons that are used today seem to be different from that what was used 100 years ago when we saw arsenic and cyanide and some of those poisons. And mm-hmm. it seems like that's mm-hmm. changed. Is, what, what do you think about that? Probably true. We have more sophisticated chemicals today. I mean, I often when I give my workshops, I, I give a quiz to the audience and I say, when you first hear the word poison, what poison comes to mind? Almost every, and I've given that to 3,000 people before I stopped giving it because I, I got the same results all the time. Their answers, cyanide, strychnine, and arsenic, are the same in the order in which they were used. So the general public, well, the workshop's not available to the general public, but for law enforcement and pathologists and attorneys, the mindset is already there. Now, today, we have more sophisticated things going on, like insulin murders. We have antifreeze involved, pesticides, et cetera. So better living through chemistry. Yeah. And do you think that that's changed because we are better at detecting some of the earlier poisons like arsenic and strychnine? Only if you suspect it in the first place. Well, that really brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you, but I have to tell you, I have been amazed that in some of the writing that I've done, I have gotten people contacting me saying, I think that my son's girlfriend is poisoning him. 
or I think my boyfriend is poisoning me. And I was kind of floored when I first got one of those emails. And I'm thinking, <clears throat> wanted to ask you, what do you do? I get those often. And my general policy is I will not talk directly to the family or to the members of the public. I will only speak through their attorney or the homicide detective working the case. And the reason that is, is that people try and convince me they're being poisoned and everyone, no one's listening to them and all this. I want to talk to a professional in between them and me. Does that make sense? It does. I'm just wondering what if a professional isn't involved? I mean, if this is not a homicide, if this is somebody saying, I think somebody is trying to poison me right now. Okay. Let's say you're a, you're a homicide detective and you've been contacted by a, a family who says, I think that mom tried to kill dad or vice versa. I say, okay, let me lead you through six critical questions that you have to work your way through. I says, the very first one is, what substance are you finding that shouldn't be in the victim? All right, this is the chemical bullet, I call it. The chemical substance that supposedly is causing the problem. That's called qualitative analysis because this is the answer to the method by which someone is trying to be put away. You have to remember that we, all of us, have chemical elements in us. So if they say, okay, they went to a chelation clinic and they found arsenic and barium and cadmium and all this stuff, I say, okay, we all have that. So the second question comes, is the substance there in a toxic amount? This is the quantitative analysis. So we all have a little bit of arsenic, but we shouldn't have toxic levels. So if we do have toxic levels, now, the next question becomes, are the symptoms that this victim or potential victim is showing, are they consistent with that substance in that toxic amount? Once more, this goes back to method. So we look at things like witness description of the symptoms that are being shown. We look at autopsy findings, etc. So when we find out, yes, let's Go back to arsenic as an example. It's there. It's in a lethal amount. The symptoms are consistent. So the next question, question number four is, so how did it get in the victim? Because this is the method. And there's a lot of ways it can get into victims. It can get in there through misuse of medications. It can get there through occupational exposure in their workplace. It can come from a natural source, from groundwater or seafood or meals herbal medications. It can be for medical conditions, so you have to work your way through that. And it can be self-given. Somebody's abusing narcotics, for example, or somebody's abusing herbal medications. And the last question is, somebody gave it to them. Ah, now we're beginning to look on that. So then we ask the next question. So who gained from this? This is where we get into the victimology studying the victim. Who has anything to gain by the death of this individual? Who had a reason to do this? This is the motive. And then lastly, we get to opportunity. So who had access not only to the victim, but the poison you're detected? 
So you kind of have to work through these six critical questions as you're going through the case. Make sense? Absolutely. So at what point do you get involved typically in these kind of cases? I usually get involved, like I said, at the beginning. I get a call from an attorney. I get a call from a homicide detective, et cetera, a pathologist that says, I'm getting inquiries about a potential poisoning case. How do I approach this? Then I go through these six critical questions. These are the steps to go through to work to get the resolution for the question that's going on. Now, you mentioned looking at some of the victimology. Is there a typical victim of a poisoner? Well, I can tell you that uh, according to the analysis of my database, when I take a look at motive, which is one of the things I look at, 21% of these 1,026 cases, the motive was individual profit, insurance policies, estates, et cetera. So quite often it is money monies involved. And the second most common thing is personal cause. Uh, this is usually a domestic situation where somebody is trying to get rid of their spouse so they can go off with another lover, etc. Those are the two most common things, lover money. So you obviously look at those things as part of your overall pattern of suspected poisoning. Again, who, right. who, who has a motive to gain something? Right. And if I take a look at the poisoners by gender, it surprises a lot of people because most known poisoners, what do you think, female or male? Well, this is kind of something I get on my high horse about because I actually know the answer to that question because I think women have a bad rap here. I think we know that when it comes to poison, that men are more likely to poison than women. And that is not the common assumption. I can tell you, according to my database analysis, the majority of poisoners are male. Not significant, not a lot, but they lead females. And the reason, I think, is that we're worse at getting away with it. I think that if a woman is going to kill, poison is going to be her weapon over a gun, more typically. She has the opportunity. Who fixes the meals? Who cleans the house? Who takes care of the sick? typically the female. I think guys screw up and they're worse at at, uh, getting away with this thing. And I think that probably if we knew all the unknowns, we would find that ladies probably lead the men, but these are known cases. That's interesting. So you're telling me that you kind of suspect that even though statistics in your database point to there being more male poisoners, it sounds like you're saying the men get caught. And so you kind of feel like in reality, there probably are more female poisoners. And I think we've been missing them. And I want to read a little poem here. And this poem is on behalf of a poisoned victim who is now buried in the cemetery, who wants you to hear about this. And so I wrote this poem a long time ago for my book, and it's called uh, The Toxic Avenger. And it says, from the grave, if lips could speak, the person who was, please, you must seek the individual who had my trust. And through deceit and cunning, into grave did thrust this body once alive and well, now silenced by death, who cannot tell my death was not what all thought then, for a poison brought my life to end. Avenge me now, for you alone can find the truth beneath this stone. 
Look close, and the clues you'll see that tell the tale of what killed me. For you must tell all others now that this was murder, and tell them how. For if no one looks to find what's here, an injustice was done to a life so dear. If now only you could hear my muted pleading to make wants clear, I'd speak as plain as it could be. Since I can't, you must avenge me. So I do my workshops uh, trying to educate pathologists, attorneys, and homicide detectives and everything. Become toxic avengers. Catch these people. The whole goal of my talk is to try and reduce the chances of people getting successfully away with poison murder. Well, this is a great place for us to take a break. And that was really kind of a, a very moving point that you gave us. When we come back, I want to shift gears and start talking about who these poisoners are, their personality, and how we can start, I guess, avenging some of the victims who either were vindicated too late or are still looking for somebody to help solve their murder. You are listening to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. Our guest today is John Trestrail, who is the, the world expert on the subjects of criminal poisoning and murder by poisoning. Spreading the outlaw truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Thread of Evidence, and we have a fascinating topic today. We're talking about criminal poisoners, how we detect them, how we recognize them, and how we avenge the victims that they have murdered. Our guest today, John Trestrail, is going to talk to us about some of these topics. And I want to start our second half of the show by talking about the personality of a poisoner. So are there certain personality traits or is there a personality profile of a poisoner? Well, it's never been worked out yet. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at is to, by looking at all these cases, I get reports every day from all over the world, newspaper reports of poisoners, and I figure, okay, when I look at one, what are you trying to tell me? Who are you? Why did you pick this weapon? How did you think you'd get away with it? So that work, the criminal investigative analysis, which people sometimes call profiling, has really not been done for poisoners yet. But I think there's some interesting things 
I remember sitting at the FBI Academy once talking to the expert on bombing. And I said, what do you know about bombers? And when he started to list off their criminal investigative analysis of bombers, I thought, my God, you're describing a poisoner. And I thought, you've got a lot in common between bombers. What do, what do we mean? Non-confrontational. In other words, these are people who are physically or emotionally incapable of confrontation. So they strike secretly from afar. Whether you set a bomb off or whether you set up the poison meal, you're really striking from afar here. Usually well-educated, usually very methodical, great planners. A great deal of preparation goes into setting up the poisoning homicide or, or a bombing. So I think that when you look at that, you, I begin to think, my God, bombers and profilers are the same in the way they're thinking. You, know, you take, for example, non-confrontational. Here is a woman, let's say, who's five foot three. She is being abused by a spouse who is, you know, six foot four, huge guy. She can't physically take this guy on. But she can fix dinner. She can plan this, and she could take him out even though she's physically inferior. Let's switch it. Here's a man who is married to a real harpy, a real screaming Mimi of a wife. He is a non-confrontational individual. He cannot put his hands around her neck and choke her to death, but he figures, I can fix your martini. And so for the non-confrontational person, this becomes spectacular weapon. Yeah, so when you say from a distance, you're meaning that they're kind of giving them something, but then they're kind of removed from the situation. So they can, yes. kind, of, they can kind of rationalize in their head, I would imagine, okay, yeah, I, I made this available, but hey, he drank it or she ate it. That's right, that's right. Now, and I, and I use that example when I give my workshop and I talk about the fact, all right, let's say there is a woman who is going to shoot her husband. Who is in control of that situation? Whose finger is on the trigger? If you're going to pull that trigger, then you are actively involved in the murder that's about to happen. But let's take a look at a poisoner. I set up your meal, and then I stand back. So now who's in charge of administering the weapon? Really, the victim. So psychologically, you can remove yourself somewhat from the act itself and just set it up, which is what you just alluded to. Is there a difference, and I would imagine there would be, between a perpetrator or a poisoner who gives kind of these slow, chronic doses over time, perhaps with the hope of making it look like an illness that's undetected, versus somebody who decides to just kind of do the whole shebang at once? More commonly, it's a large dose given one time, but there can be chronic ones. Here's something I bet you, audience, and you have never thought about. Have you ever thought about giving too little? I've never thought about poisoning somebody. I have to say that right up well, front. All right. I, I, all right. I always say, hey, guys and gals, okay. We talk about giving too much of something as being a poison. Reach a lethal dose. But here's another way to look at something. Subtherapeutic dosing. Give not too much. 
give too little. In other words, this is an individual who is now taking care of a elderly parent, let's say. Uh, let's say they want to speed up the death so that they can inherit the estate or do away with having to take care of this person. So instead of giving too much, they cut back the medication dosing. And then they let the disease state take over. So the person dies because they have too little of the therapeutic intervention needed to maintain their life. And so do you think that's going to be picked up on the autopsy? Too that's, little? Now that's really, that's really interesting. And would you still consider that poisoning? Well, it depends on how you define poisoning. I would I would call it murder, but murder by giving too little, as you know, as opposed to giving too much of something. And I think here's one to get away with. You know, you got to be a little bit in their heads all the time. And I keep thinking, yep, this is a way to get away with it. So I have to be very careful when I when I talk to folks about this that I'm not encouraging instead of educating. You know, we talked a little bit before our interview started today, and both of us kind of were talking about this mutual, almost kind of morbid fascination with poisoners. And I think one of the reasons that it's hard for me to kind of get my head around some of these things is when you read cases of a wife or a husband, and it seems to be that that's typically the relationship where this person is poisoning a loved one and then getting some kind of perverse pleasure in taking care of them over a period of time. At the same time, they're giving them these horrible doses that's creating these just excruciating physical symptoms. There are two poisoning cases I know of that are toxicomaniacs. You know what a pyromaniac is? That's a person who gets turned on by starting fires and everything. One was Graham Frederick Young, who was a Britisher in the 1970s, who was a toxicomaniac. He studied poisons from the time he was in late elementary school. He wound up murdering his own mother, stepmother. He attempted to murder his, uh, he poisoned his father, he poisoned his stepsister, they survived. He was eventually caught and sent to a mental institution, but was declared rehabilitated after so many years and went on to work in an optical company in Bovington, England, where they used thallium in making optical glass. And that was his favorite poison. He was the guy that did the tea time at four o'clock and he would uh, poison the teas and then he would go home in his laboratory notebook and talk about each individual and the dose he was given and the symptoms he was showing, et cetera. That's an interesting, sadistic person. And he was followed by a girl I've never been able to identify yet, a Japanese 16-year-old student who wanted to be as famous as Graham Frederick Young was. And uh, she did the same thing to her mother. She would uh, poison her mother with thallium, uh, it's an element. It's also a rodenticide. And uh, she would make notes. She would go in the, into her hospital room where the mother is slowly dying from the, the destruction of her nervous system. And she would take notes and take pictures, et cetera. And uh, I'm sure that she's in some psychiatric institution yet. But those are the only two I knew that were kind of what you would call sadists of the time. 
I don't know if you're familiar, and this only came out over the past couple of years, of the case in Germany named Klaus O. Oh, yeah. We're getting into the medical murderers now. That's a whole nother bunch. And we call that uh, murder on the unit. And uh, that's something that we're, uh, I'm trying to educate uh, people about healthcare poisoners. Well, I, I want to talk uh, about healthcare poisoners, but I actually think that Klaus O was a German worker in kind of a weapons factory in Germany. And he yeah. is suspected of poisoning 21 of his coworkers. And when they went to his basement, it sounds like they found really some similar paraphernalia that, that Graham Young used and that there was yeah. diaries and a whole chemistry lab. And he was basically yeah. using his employees apparently as like human guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's another one. Uh, Michael Swango, if you've ever read the book Blind Eye, mm-hmm. he was a, a physician who was a serial killer. He's now in prison. And uh, they were just infatuated with poisons. So let's talk about healthcare poisoners. Are they unique okay. or they, do they have some differences from like maybe domestic poisoners that you see? Uh, yeah, I think if you take a look at healthcare poisoners, there's some possible signs that you begin to look at. Uh, you find that they're usually very narcissistic. They frequently have found that they've polarized their coworkers, and quite often they're male. They make up a large percentage of the healthcare poisoners, and their victims are usually very young or very old because they're unable to communicate as well. And then we find out that when you take a look at the deaths on the unit, that the deaths usually occur around mealtimes or shift changes because the coworkers are preoccupied and there's less observation going on. And the deaths usually occur in cycles around a 24-hour period when the offender is not on duty or off duty. Usually the victims show uh, an abnormal death progression. In other words, they shouldn't be getting worse, but they are. And nobody can figure out why. And then all of a sudden, they crash suddenly. Often you find that the patients who are coded on the units are less successfully saved than normally because what the savior doesn't realize is that there's a poison involved in this and it's not some other physiological condition. And uh, those kinds of things are some things to watch about in healthcare poisoners. And so what would be the motives? I would imagine that money would be way low on the totem pole in these kinds of yes. poisoners. So what is yes. the motive? Quite often it's uh, to be the hero. In other words, they precipitate the crisis on the unit and then they often are involved right there trying to save them uh, because they alone know what's causing this. And uh, that's one reason to be the hero. Another reason is that there are some people that actually get a psychological pleasure out of playing God. And I know that there are so many systems in hospitals. I would imagine it's probably really difficult to detect a healthcare poisoner. It is. And usually the way that they start triggering it is when the deaths on a unit begin to climb significantly over normal statistics. 
And then they they are asking, why are people dying here all of a sudden? They shouldn't be. And then they begin to start looking. That usually triggers it, and then they're then they're looking at when are they're dying and what symptoms are they showing. And typically, these poisoners will use a single poison, like uh, insulin or succinylcholine, respiratory depressants, and they put it right in the IV lines. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back. We're going to talk continue our conversation about criminal poisoners. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. This is Thread of Evidence, and we're talking with John Trestrail, who is the world authority on criminal poisoning and murder by poison. See you in a little bit. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American freestyle bullfighting. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest half-ton fighting bulls on earth? This is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena. This is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field. Go to shortygoramafb.com or find them on Facebook. It's bullfighting time. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people... AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli. And I'm Linda Martinelli. As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter. Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness. And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our Response to Active Shooter training course. Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member. Our Response to Active Shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs. So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims. Our Response to Active Shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event. So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today. Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. Welcome back to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and today's topic is criminal poisoning. So, John, talk to us about your workshops with law enforcement and some of the messages that you really think is important for them to get. Well, the workshop I give is called um, Criminal Poisoning, Murder by Poison, and it's only available for law enforcement, homicide attorneys, and pathologists. And it's not open to the general public, and the reason is I'm going to be talking about how you investigate uh, poisoning homicide. 
I don't want that information outside of the professional world. And then I, I give another uh, segment called Poisoners Throughout History. That is open to the general public where I talk about famous poisoning cases through the years and past cultures and everything. So one of the reasons I, I give that is to try and make it more difficult for the poisoner to be successful. Of course, and we certainly don't want to plant any seeds for anyone who might have some homicidal thoughts in their head. If you're talking to law enforcement, when should their suspicion be aroused about a potential poisoning? It's a good question. Let me uh, kind of lead you through some thoughts here. All right. When we have a sudden death in a normally healthy person, it can happen, but it's unusual. So if we have a sudden death in a normally healthy person, a little light ought to go on in your head. Okay, find out, was there any interference in getting medical attention for that person? Who was stopping it? Obviously, if you're a poisoner, you don't want them to get medical attention, do you? No. Were friends and relatives not sent for during the illness? That should be another red flag. Who are you trying to keep away from this situation? Was there a quote unquote natural disease that fails to respond to normal treatment? Maybe it's not a natural disease. Maybe it's a poison being involved. Obviously, if there's a death with no visible signs of violence, to me, it's a poisoning until facts prove otherwise. That's how you're going to catch the poisoner. Another one is, is there any history of cyclical illnesses? Somebody was bad, they got better. Then they got bad again, then they got better. They got bad, they were sent into the hospital. Let's use arsenic as an example. Went into the hospital. They eliminated a lot of the toxic dose. They got better. They went home. They got poisoned again. They went. So that cyclical illness shouldn't be happening. Another one is, was there a mysterious set of symptoms in a common group? This is usually a mass poisoning going on. I, I go back and I use the example of the Oshamrikyo when they hit the Tokyo subway with Sarah Nerve Agent. We have 2,000 people coming out with the similar symptoms. You should have a flag go up. This is something going on here that we don't understand. Here's another one that should arouse your suspicion. Is there anyone anxious around the home to dispose of food, drink, or medicine? Is there any individual with a knowledge of poisons? That should be a tip-off. Maybe they work in a chemical company or something like that. Is there a request for no autopsy? You should be saying you're going to get one now. Why don't I want an autopsy done on my victim? I think the answer is obvious. I don't want you to pick it up. So you're looking for a lot of suspicious behaviors, essentially. I am. In family members. It It sounds like in family members primarily. It's usually a domestic crime. Now, are there certain physical, and I'm sure that, you know, it would depend upon the poison, but in general, are there certain physical symptoms? I know you mentioned the kind of cyclical nature of these symptoms, but are there specific symptoms in general that should kind of raise a red flag? 
I would say nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea are good symptoms that all of a sudden come on. I'm trying to think of the women that put antifreeze in their husband's drinks. Uh, that causes a lot of lethargy and uh, can cause temporary blindness. Things that all of a sudden hit that shouldn't be there, you know what I'm saying? Yes, and it also sounds like maybe a lack of response to treatment of some symptoms that you would think could be easily treated in a hospital setting. Right. Might be a clue. Now, th- this is kind of interesting because what if law enforcement is kind of starting to suspect poisoning? But, I mean, is there a general test for all poisons? I would imagine that no. you would have to have some suspicion of what it might be. Yeah, well, that's a good question. You have to realize that the analyst, the one who's going to do the, uh, the analytical toxicology work, has to be guided somewhat. I mean, it's a needle in a haystack. There are millions of chemicals out there. How are you going to find the right one? So they need to be guided somewhat by the pathologist who's saying, okay, this is the symptoms that I see on the autopsy. This is the set of symptoms that were described by the person's family, et cetera. And that would help them look at what they're looking at. They look in various panels, heavy metals, substance abuse, alcohols, et cetera. But there are a lot of, lot of chemicals that fall outside those things. So they need to be guided somewhat. I know you've been involved in several high-profile cases, which we'd love to hear about. So tell us about your role as a consultant in the poisoning of Kim Jong-un's half-brother. Well, I got called by the uh, one was a reporter out of Korea and one out of Malaysia, I think. Uh, two reporters called me when this thing happened. And, uh, of course, I saw it come across the news alerts, and I thought, hmm, this doesn't make sense. They're supposedly using VX, which is a nasty, nasty nerve agent. So these two girls supposedly walk up with VX on their hands, which can be absorbed dermally, rub it on his face, and he succumbs to symptoms within a few minutes to hours. And these girls walk away. I can't figure this out yet, how this happened. Because they should be showing symptoms also. And so when I was talking to the reporters over there, I said, I don't understand what's going on. How are these women remaining symptom-free? But they continued, and uh, I never did hear much more from them. So that was my sense in in that case. I haven't seen any more discussions of how they remain symptom-free. So the poison that they thought they used, like you said, should have been transmitted to the people who actually were administering it, and it was Correct. Mm. Correct. I want to know how, because these were supposedly bare hands, and they were supposedly went to the bathroom and they were told to wash their hands. Boy, that doesn't do it. A lethal dose of that stuff could cover a small section of a 10-cent dime. That's a lethal amount. It looks like motor oil. And I thought, I don't understand this. I'd sure like to know what really happened. Now, I'm putting you on the spot here for a minute, and I'll give you a second to think about it. But I'm just wondering about the most 
challenging or a fascinating case that you've come across in your career? Fascinating. Besides Crippen, boy, that was, uh, that was something. Or how about even challenging? Like one that was just... Well, they're, really all, they're all challenging to me because I'm trying to figure out what's really going on. I get called by an attorney who says, I'm representing a husband, a woman who claims that uh, her husband was poisoning her coffee. Of course, I start out with the six questions, and then I keep thinking, okay, did he really do it? What evidence do they have? Oh, well, they've got, uh, she put up a security camera, and she it shows him putting something in her coffee. Okay. Uh, let's go to the next step. Let's rule in or out whether she did it to herself to frame him. Uh, so you kind of go through all of these mind games as you're going through the cases. They're not easy. They're, this is the most difficult kind of homicide or attempt to homicide to prove. It is tough because my weapon is invisible. It's molecular. The chemical monkey wrench. You know what okay. happens when you throw a monkey wrench in the engine? Screws up your car. What happens when you put, uh, for example, uh, a small amount of thallium or compound 1080 or any of the chemical substances in the body? It starts messing with the body's biochemistry. So it's really tough to work on. They're not easy. We talked a little bit about healthcare poisoners, but I'm also wondering if a lot of domestic poisoners are in some kind of medical or healthcare profession? Well, the ones I've been watching on the news alerts uh, are typically not. They're not typically nurses or doctors, although there are a few. They're typically just domestic spouses. And one of them says, well, there's a, bo- a bottle of something out in the garage that says poison on it. I think I'll put that in his or her dinner. And it plays out within the home. Yeah, this is such a difficult and interesting kind of area. Do you think poisoners are making a comeback? No, I think it's always been constant. It's been around for thousands of years and it just continues. I haven't seen a huge increase. I think that... Um, The problem is that we're worse at suspecting it. I keep going back to that. It's the bottom line for me is it's always suspected, always, until facts prove otherwise. And so, yeah, what are your thoughts about that in terms of why it would not be suspected? Lack of education, lack of awareness? Well, yes, uh, lack of education, which is why I try and, and give my workshops to law enforcement, is to think about it in the first place. And the other one is falling back on this attitude that says we're better at detecting it than we did 100 years ago. Well, yeah, that's true if you're looking for it in the first place. But don't fall back on that. It doesn't happen. Not everybody in this country has access to a high-caliber analytical toxicology laboratory. What are your thoughts about some of these labs that have popped up? There's something like any test now, there's several labs that actually will offer these kind of heavy metal tests or 
kind of a generic test, you know, not for every potential poison, but say the top 20 or top 25 poison. What do you think about those? I'm a little suspicious uh, when you start advertising your laboratory. I mean, the typical analytical tox lab is integrated with the healthcare system very heavily. So when you start to say, well, come to our chelation laboratory and we'll tell you if you're getting mercury from your fillings or you're, you're getting a lot of stuff. And then what they say is, well, yes, we see that you have arsenic, cadmium, all these heavy metals. You need to be chelated, which means pulling the substance out of the body. Often, they don't tell them, hey, we all have that. We all have a little bit of arsenic in us. I think as a psychologist, the dilemma for me is that, as I mentioned earlier, the rare times when I have gotten an email or a phone call saying, I really do think that my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my wife or my husband is poisoning me, but I don't know what it is. It is kind of a dilemma for me because on the one hand, we know how rare poisonings occur, at least that are convicted or discovered. And on the other hand, I read every week of cases where somebody has been murdered through poison. And so the question becomes, you know, if I've gone to the police, the police don't see any evidence of this, they don't believe me. And of course, also as a psychologist, I know that there are certainly some mental illnesses that can't, you know, one of the symptoms can be, you know, being somewhat paranoid or concerned that, you know, that somebody is hurting you or poisoning or plotting against you. And so, you know, what kind of advice, again, do you give this person? Well, the first thing I do is I always tell these kinds of people that if they're not getting through to the police, go get a second opinion. I do not want to talk to them directly because I've been involved in cases where they spent all their time trying to convince you because of something that made absolutely no sense toxicologically what was going on. So I try and put a professional in between me and them all the time. And who would that second opinion be? Second opinion could be another physician. Mm-hmm. If it's a physician that's uh, making the diagnosis, I would get a second opinion. It could be take it back to the police department, get a second opinion from them. You want somebody somebody involved in this circle of information that has the authority to do something, not just the general public. I would agree with that. And I guess some of the advice I've given in the past is, you know, making a list of your symptoms and timing and going to your physician with that list of symptoms and talking with him or her and also talking to the police. And like you're saying, if the person is saying, if the physician is saying these are incompatible with any poison I know, maybe you do get a second opinion. And I guess as a psychologist, the other piece of advice as I've said is, hey, get some kind of support because, you know, if it's real, then obviously you need some support to get through this. And, you know, I guess my other thought was if it is a symptom of mental illness and hopefully they'll get involved with a therapist who can recognize that and then help them get treatment for that. Sounds good to me. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, listen, it's time for us to stop. Unfortunately, you've given us a wealth of information. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your um, insight and your wisdom about this topic, which is really interesting and And also grim, but something that I think we all need to be aware of and to know. You're welcome. 
Thanks again. Um, this okay. is Dr. Joni Johnston, Threat of Evidence, and you have been listening to our topic on criminal poisoning. Please turn in next time to hear Dr. Ron Martinelli um, with his fascinating topic. Thank you. See you next time.